welcome to the High Vibe and Healthy Podcast. My name is Fran Dargaville and I'm a functional nutritionist with a passion for gut health and real food. I'm here to share my take on nutrition and health, answer your questions and chat with leading health and wellness experts and all-round inspiring humans. Enjoy this week's episode and submit your questions at frandargaville.com or via my Instagram, frandargaville. Hey there, friend. In today's episode, we're chatting all about inflammatory bowel disease or IBD. IBD is one of those conditions where people are almost always just given medication and sent out the door, which I know can be so frustrating and disempowering. The good news is there is so much you can do with your diet and lifestyle to help you manage IBD. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Sean Golden, who is a researcher, chiropractor, and integrative health specialist with a focus on inflammatory bowel disease and specifically Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Over the years, he has continuously experimented and tweaked the natural strategies he uses so that those with IBD can gain freedom from their condition as quickly and with as little dietary limitation as possible. So if you have IBD, I know you're going to get so much out of this conversation. So let's get into it. Hey, Sean, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Fran, thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to have you here and to be chatting all about something that we haven't actually spoken about at all on the podcast before, which quite honestly, that blows my mind because it is something that I, I do support people with and it is a huge challenge for so many people out there. So I think it's really, really important that we have this conversation. Yeah, for sure. So how did you get into supporting people with IBD in the first place? So how it started was I've been into functional medicine, nutrition, holistic types of, of uh, helping people for a long time. Uh, it started with myself. I'd hypothyroidism in the past, and I was able to overcome that without medication, just by digging in through the research, figuring out what works, what doesn't. After my success with that, when I was in chiropractic college, one of my best friends at the time had a combination of both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. He was diagnosed with both. And so for the listeners who don't know necessarily what that is, IBD is sort of like this umbrella term that uh, the two main types are Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And those are sort of separate from IBS. IBS is, is definitely has its own collection of symptoms and some of them can be similar to IBD, but the difference is at its core, IBD is an autoimmune condition. So that's a big difference that kind of separates the two. And you can diagnose that through a colonoscopy. There's signature findings uh, for both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Uh, For my friend, he had something in this colonoscopy called skip lesions, which is a diagnosis specifically for Crohn's. It's where you have healthy tissue separated by damaged tissue. And that kind of skips around like that. It's not continuous. Whereas for ulcerative colitis, it is more or less continuous inflammation that generally just affects the inner lining of the colon, but can usually come with a lot more rectal bleeding compared to Crohn's. So that's one little difference there too. He, in in his case, he was just, he was really brutally suffering. At this point, he had lost over 20 pounds. He was running out of class every day because he's constantly running to the bathroom. Um, Not because he had to go to the bathroom, but just because of blood for the most part. 
And, uh, you know, he, he felt like he couldn't eat anything at that point in time, just a huge, huge flare up. Um, he had already tried to buy a logic that had failed him. It didn't do anything. And now he was on, um, a different type of medication called mesalamine. And that one was effective for him. It was about 60% effective, but he had to pay four grand out of pocket every month for it with his insurance. And he was a broke college student, couldn't really afford that. So based on my own success with overcoming my own chronic health condition, my hypothyroidism, I told him, Hey, let me, give me a few months. I'm going to dig into the research here for you and see what I find. And he ended up really being, this was like seven, eight years ago, my first beta tester, essentially, where I put together this little natural protocol for him uh, based entirely on research. This is what the clinical trial showed worked um, a few, a few supplements, a few different nutritional strategies. And within a month, he went into full remission and over the past seven years, he's been able to maintain that besides maybe a week or two of a flare up within seven years. So a really, really good result with him. So after that first experience, I started, I'm like, Hey, maybe I got something here. So I started reaching out to people one-on-one -on -one and helping people gain as much freedom as possible using just research-based natural methods in order to have them uh, improve their quality of life dealing with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So that's kind of how I got started and, and what I'm doing now today. Yeah, I love that. And I think this is one of those areas where, I mean, there are many areas where this happens, but people are often just given a diagnosis here and then probably given some medication and then sent out the door. And I've even had clients say that they've said, you know, do I need to do anything specific with my diet? Is there anything else I need to be doing? And they've just been told no, or maybe it's things like, yeah, just opt for, you know, white, highly processed bread and that sort of thing mm. instead. And they're very confused and they're not given any helpful tools that they can go and put into practice in their life. Whereas obviously, as you found, and as I've seen with people as well, these things, you know, which are quite simple and that you can just do at home yourself in terms of nutrition and, uh, you know, really the foundations and the, the pillars of health can have a huge difference when it comes to IBD. Absolutely. It's unfortunate that I found working with people that, at least in the US here, most medical doctors just are simply unaware of the research that's out there for these natural methods, whether it's diet, supplements. It, there's there's an abundance of clinical trials that are peer-reviewed, high-level data that the medical doctors just aren't aware of. I, I mean, in medical school, you're lucky if you get a, a day's worth of nutrition training throughout four years. So usually <laughs> it's just a few hours. So it's it's not in their wheelhouse. Their you know their go-to is always going to be medication and surgery if needed, and those definitely have their place, absolutely. But there's this whole other realm of, of nutrition supplements and that kind of thing that can make a dramatic impact uh, sometimes in, in, in some people and really help improve their quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. And I know there was a study done a while back that said it takes on average 17 years for the scientific research to be actually put into practice. So I think we go to our our doctor expecting that it's going to be, you know, the latest advice that we are given. But in so many cases, in some cases, of course, you know, you are getting the latest advice, but on average, we are getting, uh, you know, we're, we're not getting the latest advice. And of course, when it comes to doctors as well, 
we typically will go and see them once for a very short visit and then we may not see them again for many months or even years. They just don't have the bandwidth to, you know, help with the behaviour change that is needed to put some of these things into practice as well. Absolutely. A lot of times they're seeing patients for five to 10 minutes and they're doing that back to back to back and they just, they literally don't have the time or resources to help in that way. So I completely agree. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you did touch on this really briefly, but could you just explain the difference between IBD and IBS for anyone listening? For sure. So um, when it comes to IBD, that's inflammatory bowel disease, as opposed to IBS, inflammatory bowel syndrome. And the difference is that with IBS, it's, it's, it's really this collection of symptoms that uh, you know, there may be different causes It may be food intolerances. There may be the ways that you've been eating. There may be stress associated with it, something like that, that, that kind of all comes together to form this raging diagnosis that we call IBS. However, one thing that's very different between the two is that IBS doesn't have this autoimmune aspect to it. If you look at the different types of immune cells, T cells, things like that in their bodies, they're not actively attacking their own system. They're not actively destroying themselves. That's a difference with IBD, where with both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, which are two types of IBD, they are autoimmune conditions at their core, which is why uh, most medical doctors will tell you that it's untreatable or it's not curable and that you'll have it for life because that's essentially the case with all autoimmune conditions. Now, the difference is, while it may not be technically curable, you can go into remission for long periods of times. It could be years, even decades, um, and, which is a much better situation to be in than, than having constant flare-ups you know, over and over a few times a year, that type of thing. So with IBD, you, know, you can't just focus on reducing inflammation or just focus on restoring the microbiome because there's a third pillar there besides inflammation and microbiome, which is the immune system. And that's something you have to take into account and uh, deal with specifically because in IBD, it is the immune system that's creating the chronic inflammation. So if you're just trying to take anti-inflammatory herbs, supplements, stuff like that, you can tame it down. But if you want to achieve lasting remission type of thing, you have to actually deal with the immune system. And there's, there, there is research to support that natural strategies can actually do that. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And I think it's so empowering to be able to give people tools that they can put into practice in their own life to actually support this. And I think, as you said, so many people with autoimmune conditions, whatever autoimmune condition that may be, often feel very, very disempowered when they've been to visit their doctor because, you know, as you said, it is a matter of just taking medication and managing this for life. But in so many cases, you can, you know, get into remission and really manage your symptoms and avoid the progression of that disease with obviously a lot of these, you know, nutrition and lifestyle tools and, and all of that. So, that I, I just think that is so empowering for people. The caveat is that it's not easy, of course. It requires a lot of work and, and commitment to put these things into practice. But once it becomes your new normal, then, you know, I think that's really empowering and really cool that you can have 
so much, you know, control over your body and the outcomes of this disease. Absolutely. For sure. I mean, when it comes to what most people hear when they go to their medical doctor, it's just that this, it, the, the cause is unknown, uh, go on medication for the rest of your life. It's going to progress. You might need surgery in the future and there's really nothing you can do about it. And that's a very disempowering place to be. Uh, and it can add to stress. It can add to feelings of helplessness and hopelessness and, and stuff like that, which isn't good for the condition anyway. And so uh, there, when it's just, there's options out there that most people are just completely unaware of because they're not told about it by their medical doctor. But if you, if you, you know, I've, I've seen people who uh, have IBD, they go home every day, they're eating cocoa puffs, they're eating cereal, they're eating all this junk food, and they have literally zero concept that has anything to do with their IBD, uh, especially if they do find foods like you mentioned earlier, like white bread or something like that, that seems okay in the short term that they can start relying on. And they have, they don't have any concept of how that's going to actually influence the progression and how they, they actually do have a sense of control. If they understand the right things to do and some things that could help them maybe prevent a surgery going forward or prevent frequent flare-ups and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So now I know everyone's going to be wondering what the actual practical tools are that we're talking about. So let's get into some of those now. So let's start with omega-3s. So what role does, you know, do omega-3s have when it comes to IBD? So when I have an IBD um, client come to me, usually looking at their fat intake is one of the first things I do, mainly because uh, the total amount of fat intake and the research has shown over and over again, that a very high fat diet uh, usually negatively affects the progression of IBD. It can contribute to flare-ups. And before we get into specifics with omega-3, the reason that is, is because with IBD, it's mainly a colon issue, the large intestine, not the small intestine, although sometimes for Crohn's, it can come into play. But if it's a colon issue, the proteins that you eat and the carbs that you eat, they typically get absorbed in the small intestine. They don't even make it all the way down to the colon. The fiber that you eat will, but the, the other carbs and the proteins, they should get absorbed in the small intestine and not even see the large intestine. The fat that you eat though, has to get conjugated with bile. And that bile goes all the way to the colon before it gets absorbed. And when you have existing colon inflammation and IBD, a high fat intake will usually aggravate that colon inflammation. So that's usually one of the things I talk about right off the bat. How, what, what's your total fat intake? What types of fat are you eating? That type of thing. And let's see if we can just take it down a notch. Now, even more importantly than that, besides a total fat intake is the types of fat that you're eating. And one of the differences between the types of fat are omega-3s and omega-6s. Now, many people listening probably have heard of omega-3s like fish oil, uh, EPA, DHA, that type of thing, generally know that it's an anti-inflammatory fat. They may not be as familiar with omega-6s, which are the opposite end of the spectrum, which pretty much have the opposite role of omega-3s. So omega-3s can generally have anti-inflammatory effects, and this has to do with something called a type of prostaglandins that they produce. And omega-6s produce 
pretty much opposite prostaglandins that can promote and prolong chronic inflammation. And you'll find these everywhere. So if you go out to eat in restaurants, they're going to be cooking in vegetable oils, which are omega-6 dominant oils. They're omega-6 fats. And if you use margarine, if you're using corn oil or vegetable oil or cooking at home, if you eat at fast food places, if you eat processed food like bars and stuff like that, if you look on the ingredients, you're going to see things like soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, corn oil, all of those types of oils are omega-6 fats. And there's been a quite a few uh, line of research showing that a high intake of omega-6 fats will negatively affect the progression of IBD. It'll make it harder to get into remission. It'll promote a flare-up and it'll negatively affect the immune system. It'll promote chronic inflammation at the immune system level. Whereas if you lower your omega-6 intake and especially at the same time, raise your omega-3 intake, then you can kind of do the opposite of that. You can lower the immune system activation, you can lower chronic inflammation, and you can activate what are called pro-resolving mediators, which are these aspects from omega-3s that get these metabolites that get produced that can actually help resolve existing inflammation. So that ratio is a huge ratio for IBD when it comes to fat intake. Most people's omega-6s are sky high. They have no idea how much they're consuming if they are eating an average Western diet. And most people's omega-3 intake is very, very low, um, you know, compared to omega-6 and compared to our past. In the past, we could get omega-3s from many different sources. I mean, if you ate meat, like if you ate uh, cow and meat from a cow in the past, that cow would have been grazing on grass. And that grass actually gives the meat in the cow omega-3. Whereas now most meat is grazing on corn or, or um, grains. And so then they actually get omega-6s into the meat. And so instead of getting more omega-3s, we're getting omega-6s. But there's just so, I mean, our, our intake of vegetable oil and omega-6s has skyrocketed over this past century uh, to a level we've never seen before in our evolution. Uh, our evolutionary history. So that's just one really important concept between the two. Now, there is a little detail here. There's been a bunch of studies with IBD where they've given fish oil and about 80% of them have showed no effect of the fish oil. And so I, what I would need to make that clear because I don't want your listeners to go out and think, oh, if I just take fish oil, I'll be okay because I'm getting omega-3s. It comes down to the ratio that's what the studies are pointing to. So what this means is if you're consuming dozens upon dozens of grams of omega-6s and you're popping one gram of fish oil, you're not really influencing that ratio. And it's not, you're not going to see that effect. But in the research where they've actually changed their diet so that they lowered the omega-6 intake and they increased the omega-3 intake, not just with fish oil, but also with either flaxseed or flaxseed oil, which is also an omega-3. And you can consume like a tablespoon of that, which gives you a much better change in ratio between omega-6s and 3s. That's when you start to see the actual significant differences in the research. So the take-home point is you have to lower the total amount of omega-6 you're, you're intaking, which means less processed food, less restaurants, less fast food, just checking the ingredients for those vegetable oils and then increasing the amount of omega-3s that you're taking, 
either from fatty fish, uh, fish oil, flaxseed oil, or flaxseed. They all were effective. The fish oil actually wasn't more effective than the flaxseed. They, the, if anything, the flaxseed actually was slightly more effective. So, um, so that's one real good take-home strategy uh, that they can implement right away. Yeah, I really like that. And also just the fact that it just shines a light on the whole picture and how just focusing on eating whole foods from nature and also quality foods, as you said, with eating beef, for example, if you can get grass-fed organic beef and that's, you know, within your budget and everything, then that may be sort of supportive as well. It's really the whole picture of health and you can't just go and out supplement a bad diet, unfortunately, because as you said, this is a really good example of how that just doesn't work, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I would also imagine, obviously, this is just how I think just trying to bring all of these different things together. And where I sort of focus on is that, you know, supporting your gallbladder function and supporting your liver and, and all of that is, you know, going to help with fat digestion as well. So obviously studies don't tend to go in this kind of depth because they're just scratching the surface, but you know, this is how I would be thinking as well. If you have gallbladder issues or if you've had your gallbladder removed, looking into your fat digestion would be super important to consider as well. Absolutely. Because if, if you don't have, if you got your gallbladder removed or for some reason you have low bile, those, whatever fats you eat are going to definitely inflame the colon way more because they're not even going to get absorbed. They're just going to go farther down than they should and, and, and contribute to that inflammation. So I, I definitely agree. And we need to be uh, very personalized in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And one more thing to touch on there is with supplements. And I mention this all the time on the podcast, but not all supplements are created equal and a high quality, um, you know, practitioner grade supplement like a fish oil, for example, or, um, you know, cod liver oil or anything like that is not going to be the same as the supplement that you just, you know, fish oil in particular that you go and pick up from the local supermarket. There are massive differences in quality and there has been more and more sort of research emerging very recently that basically the majority of fish oil on the market is already rancid before you even take it home. So focusing on quality when it comes to any of these sort of supplements, particularly when it comes to things like fish oil, that's when it almost matters the most is so important. So yes, it might cost a little bit extra, but it's going to be more beneficial to be taking and it's not going to be having potential adverse effects. I totally agree. And um, just for your listeners, what I would say is um, when I, when I have, when I'm dealing with an IBD patient, I actually don't recommend fish oil right off the bat because the, the research has actually showed flaxseed and flaxseed oil to have a slightly stronger effect anyway. And there was, a, there's a very recent study that just came out this year with rheumatoid arthritis, another autoimmune condition where they also compared flaxseed to fish oil and flaxseed also had a stronger effect. Uh, same in multiple sclerosis, flaxseed oil has a stronger effect than fish oil. So in these autoimmune conditions, it's actually seeming that the flaxseed oil is actually having a stronger effect. Most people don't understand that because we've been trained to think in terms of prostaglandins as nutritionists, and you would think that fish oil would have a stronger effect, but the new research is showing 
there's this whole other component of metabolites that get produced called oxylipins. And flaxseed oil can produce its own independent oxylipins. The fish oil cannot. And that could help explain the difference there. But the cool thing about flaxseed is that then you don't have to worry about quality because you can just go get fresh whole flaxseed and you can grind it yourself in your coffee grinder, put in a smoothie, put in a shake, whatever you want to do. And then, you know, you're just getting the whole food in the research. They used both ground flaxseed and flaxseed oil, and they got equivalent results. So you can choose either one. Um, and, and that, that ensures that you're not getting any toxicity that's potentially from, from the fish oil, like you mentioned with the rancidity. Uh, and it's, you're getting a whole food. I mean, with the flaxseed ground flaxseed, you're getting the whole, the whole seed there too. So that's a, that's a nice way to, to do it in my opinion. Yes. Yep. I like the idea of having the whole flaxseeds and I guess with flaxseed oil, I guess quality would be a consideration there as well, you know, cold pressed. And I think typically those sort of oils are supposed to be refrigerated as uh, well. Yes. Absolutely. I, the one I usually recommend just to throw it out there is Solgar uh, earth source flaxseed oil because they, they fill it with nitrogen gas when they cap it so that there's no oxygen in there and it's a brown glass bottle. So it's, it makes sure that it's not rancid by the time it gets to you. Whereas a lot of other flaxseed oils, I mean, if you open it and you smell it and it, you, you can smell the rancidity, it just smells like a bitter smell to it. So you don't, that's not, you don't want to eat that then. Um, and I usually put mine in the freezer or the refrigerator, either one. Um, usually it doesn't freeze, but, uh, but yeah, the oil, you do have to be careful with it, with it spoiling like that. So if you don't want to worry about that, you can just do the ground flaxseed. Um, I personally use both for myself, but, um, but you can, you can choose either one. Perfect. That's very helpful. So let's chat about fiber now, because I know this is a massive area of confusion for people. Obviously in the general population, fiber is always, you know, recommended and we're recommended to have more and more of it. And then obviously some people with, you know, IVD are re recommended to steer clear. And then that's when they end up opting for things like the white bread. And I know this can be super confusing, you know, for people. So what's your advice around this? Yeah. So the fiber is definitely a confusing topic for most people because they, some, some specialists will tell them you need to eat a lot of fiber. It's good for your gut, good for your microbiome. Other people will say, no fiber is just going to flare you up. And the difference is that there's different types of fiber and there you, you might want to consume different quantities of fiber at different times, depending on what your current condition is. So the way of, that, I, that I tell people to think about it is, first off, there's two different types of fiber to be aware of. There's soluble, and I'm also going to say fermentable. I'm going to put that in the same category. And then I'm going to put insoluble and non-fermentable in another category. What that means is there's some fibers that you take that will actually support your microbiome. So these are the fermentable fibers. They'll, you'll eat them. They'll go into your colon, the gut bacteria will gobble them up and they'll poop out what are called short chain fatty acids. And they'll essentially ferment those fibers, giving off usually beneficial byproducts. Now the insoluble or non-fermentable fibers, those do not support your microbiome. Those cannot be used by bacteria for food. Uh, instead, they're just not digestible. They're not digestible by you and they're not digestible by bacteria. They kind of go through you. Um, those are the type of fibers that people talk about, like a broom to the gut, so to speak. In IBD specifically, 
they do very, very poorly with insoluble and non-fermentable fibers. So these include things like raw nuts, like raw almonds, let's say. And it also includes things like very hard vegetables. Think of like a broccoli stem or other very tough fibrous vegetables. That fiber is usually cellulose in the vegetables, which is insoluble and non-fermentable. It doesn't support your microbiome. Now there's other good things in vegetables that do support your microbiome besides fiber. That's not the only contributor to a microbiome, but for IBD in particular, if especially if you're not a remission, if you have a bunch of symptoms, you want to avoid the, the insoluble and non-fermentable fibers. That is that essentially boils down to avoid hard nuts and seeds, um, avoid uh, beans in the beginning, and avoid uh, those those hard to digest vegetables. Any any stem like vegetable or any vegetable that has a structure to it that's not soft, that's going to be the cellulose that's giving it that structure. So that's what you want to avoid. Now, what you want to encourage yourself to take are the fermentable fibers. Now, these are fibers that uh, can occur in, in a variety of foods, but I'll give you a, a few options here. One option we've already talked about, which are the flax seeds. Flax seeds actually have a lot of fermentable fiber and they tend to do very well in IBD, just like we were talking about. So besides the omega-3 component, the type of fiber that's in ground flax seeds, it's very beneficial for IBD, most IBD patients tolerate them very well, even during a flare-up, which is not the case for most other seeds. And um, there's something that you can just continue to have on your diet. Now, you might want to start off at maybe, you know, 10 grams or something and, and slowly move up. You don't want to start with like 50 grams of fiber right off the bat, let your gut adjust to it. But uh, that's one option that works really well. Another option is xylem husk. Xylem husk fiber is, is mainly a fermentable fiber, and you can get this in kind of a coarse uh, xylem husk, or you can get a ground. Um, different recipes call for different types. I usually get the coarse kind, so I can grind it myself if I need to. But this is a fiber that has a lot of research supporting it for both actually IBS and IBD. And it's something that's very easy to put in different recipes. You could just put in water or a smoothie. Um, stuff like that. Be careful with the quantity because if you put a ton, it's just going to gel it up way too much. But there, what I would usually recommend is if you're baking your own foods or you're making your own meals, you can find a lot of recipes online that actually incorporate xylem husk and you can use that in the recipe, which makes it a lot easier to take that. So that's the second option for great fiber to consume. The third option is something that, that uh, I find very helpful for IBD, which are steel cut oats. As far as oats go, steel cut is the most unrefined that you can get. If you look at IBD aid diet, which is the, the, um, this anti-inflammatory diet that was created by a, uh, a natural medical university, and they, they use oats as their only source of grains for their IBD patients. And that's been working really, really well. Oats have uh, also mainly soluble and fermentable fiber in it. So it supports your microbiome. It's usually very easy to tolerate. And if you do steel cut oats and you make sure to make them kind of mushy and not, not hard, they're usually very easy to digest. 
Uh, a lot of times with IBD, the texture of the food can matter quite a bit. So you want to make them soft, mushy, cook them well, uh, stuff like that. But that's, you know, a lot of times with IBD, we feel so restricted on what we can eat. We can't eat grains. We can't eat this. And steel cut oats is a completely unrefined natural food that you can have. It has an abundance of polyphenols, an abundance of fiber, uh, and vitamins and minerals. And it's just, it's a great, it, it's a great food to be able to have that usually doesn't cause any problems and can actually support the microbiome long-term. Yeah, that's really helpful advice. And I also love that you're just talking about the whole food form of these things, because what I find is, for example, I'm not, I'm not sure if you have Metamucil in the US, mm-hmm. but it's, it's basically psyllium husk with a bunch of other garbage in there and colors and flavors and all of this stuff. And a lot of people with IBD and other gut issues are advised to take that. And they don't know that they can just pay significantly less for the whole food form that doesn't have all of those additives. So I really like your focus on the whole food version of these things. Yeah. In my opinion, there's just no reason to take Metamucil. Most people don't even like how it tastes. So you're, you know, what's the point then? And it's more expensive. It's filled with artificial stuff that you don't need going in your body. So I, yeah, I would definitely just go for the straight Xylem husk. And just play with it and find different recipes. Look online. You'll find tons of different ways that you can incorporate it into into your meals. Yeah, I love that. It's just one of those super easy things. Same with the ground flaxseed that you can just put in with all sorts of things. So that's great advice. Mm -hmm. So I know you wanted to share a simple diet strategy that you often recommend to people with IBD. So could you share that with us now? Yeah, you know, we've kind of been talking about it a little bit and dancing around it, but we haven't gone into it in depth, but you've brought it, you were the first one to bring it up in the beginning, actually, which is the white bread thing. Because when people have IBD, there are so, you have to understand there's, and I'm sure you do understand, but there's so many emotions involved with this, right? So you, you know, they, they don't know what to eat. They're afraid of eating foods because uh, they've, they've eaten, you know, they've eaten something as simple as an orange and kind of flared them up. Right. So they don't know what to do. And especially when they come, when they're in that flare up place where they feel so restricted, they don't want to go back there. So what ends up usually happening in my experience is that they end up restricting their own foods. So they end up shortening what they eat, shortening their menu to restrict it to something like white bread or white rice or these or bananas or these safe foods that they can rely on, so to speak, that they know isn't going to flare them up. And logically, that totally makes sense, but it's a very short term way of thinking. And if you if you continue to think in that short-term way of thinking, then you're not going to break out of what's called the vicious cycle, where you go from flare-up to doing okay, remission, back to flare-up, and it just goes on repeat mode for years, and it just progresses, and that's what we want to avoid. So I want to shift your thinking to long-term mode, and a perfect way, a perfect example that is the difference between relying on something like white rice compared to relying on something like steel cut oats. Both of these are grains. Both of them usually do very well with IBD patients, but most patients don't know about the oats, but they know that white rice is okay. 
But what they don't realize is that the white rice doesn't have anything beneficial in it. It's a processed grain that is stripped of all its nutrients, stripped of all polyphenols and doesn't have any fiber. And so you're consuming this carb that is not going to be supportive for your microbiome in order for it to end up improving and flourishing long-term. So what ends up happening when you have a disrupted microbiome is that pathogenic bacteria that shouldn't be there can grow more easily. Whereas if you support your microbiome and you make it very diverse and healthy, then you have all this competition in there and the pathogenic bacteria doesn't really get a chance to overgrow and cause a lot of problems. So when you need to restrict your food, if you rely on something like steel cut oats, for example, then you are getting not just carbs, but you're getting all that fiber that supports your microbiome. You're getting the vitamins and minerals in there, and you're getting the polyphenols. The oats and most whole natural foods are loaded with polyphenols and phytonutrients, and those have their own independent anti-inflammatory activity, as well as supporting the microbiome with the fiber. The polyphenols and the fiber kind of act together as a synergy in order to promote beneficial species from flourishing and prevent pathogenic species from being able to grow. And they do that because that's how we've evolved our entire evolutionary history. We've never been able to consume carbs that don't have some fiber and some polyphenols in them. That's how we've always eaten up until the 1900s, where we start stripping the carbs of all of these beneficial properties. And we're eating in, in a way that we've never eaten in our past. And so that that's kind of one thing I want you to, to get from this is shifting from short-term thinking to long-term thinking. When you restrict your food intake, ask yourself, what can I rely on that will still be unrefined? What can I rely on that will still have its natural fiber, will still have its natural polyphenols that can support my microbiome so that as we get out of this flare-up, now my microbiome's at a better place and less likely to go into another flare-up rather than in the same place or a worse place. I mean, if you're relying on only white rice for a month, your microbiome is not going to be happy with that after that month. So you're actually worsening your microbiome during that flare-up. So you want to think about long-term improvement and not just short-term safety mode. Yeah, that is a really helpful perspective shift because I've seen that with people, whether it's with IBD or anything else, you know, with more of these chronic health challenges where we just focus on what's not going to drive those symptoms, those safe foods, as you mentioned. And that is absolutely short-term thinking. And of course, sometimes when you're in a flare, you just need to basically just minimize symptoms and that's okay. But as long as you have a strategy for shifting towards more of these things that are going to be supportive for you in the long term, the foods that are going to provide you with all of those benefits, as you mentioned. So that's really, really helpful. Can we touch briefly on the low FODMAP diet? Because I know a lot of people with IBD are being recommended to opt for the low FODMAP diet with varying results. So what's your take on this? Yeah. So um, the, the low FODMAP diet can be useful for IBD. Um, in my IBD course, I do have it in there. So it is something I teach. However, it's way late in the course. It's not one of the first ways of eating or diet strategies. And there's a few reasons for this. The first is that low FODMAP diet wasn't created for IBD. 
it was created more for IBS. And, and we've talked about how there are some differences between the two and that we want to make sure for IBD specifically that long-term we're improving the microbiome and we're addressing the dysregulated immune system. Those are very two key things you want to do for long-term progress for IBD. The low FODMAP diet doesn't do either of those things. It does not improve the microbiome long-term. In fact, almost every single study has shown that it usually will worsen the microbiome, at least in the short term, unless you put up strategies in place like probiotics or specific fiber supplementation that can prevent that worsening of the microbiome, but it doesn't improve the microbiome. It's for symptom management. And for IBD, that again is, is moving into the short-term thinking strategy. The second reason is that for IBD, food sensitivities change. They're not constant all the time. Six months from now or a year from now, you could be sensitive to different foods or during a flare-up, you might not be able to handle this particular food at all. Let's say beans, for example, but it doesn't mean you have to cut it out forever. It, if, you, if you are in remission, you might tolerate beans just fine. And that would be great to consume because again, beans would be a great food to improve the microbiome long-term. So the low FODMAP diet is incredibly difficult to actually do properly. Most people don't do it properly in the first place, but if you do, it takes a long time. It's very restrictive, uh, very methodical, and um, it just doesn't address the core issues of IBD. So what I, there's, there's other diet strategies I recommend. Um, there's one in my course called the Simple IBD Diet, but as far as what people could get for free right now, I mentioned it already. It's the IBD aid diet. It was created by UMass University. If you look it up on Google, just IBD AID, it stands for anti inflammatory diet. It is a, it's kind of an evolution of the specific carbohydrate diet. And it's, it was made specifically for IBD, whereas the low FODMAP was made more for IBS. So they're just, there's different ways, different problems in each category that you have to address. And so the, and the, the other reason I like the IBDA diet is it's not nearly as restrictive as the low FODMAP diet, and it, it lays it out in different levels. So if you're in a flare up, it gives you a great list of unrefined whole foods that you can consume during that flare-up. And then once you get to stage two, which is kind of like you still have some symptoms, but you're not in full remission, then the it opens up the, the categories of food a little bit more. And then when you are in full remission or doing great, then you have all of these other lists of foods that you can potentially play with and see how they, uh, how they do with you. There are some foods that are totally restricted um, throughout the whole thing, but uh, as far comparing it to the low FODMAP diet, it's a much less restrictive approach. It gives you full meal plans, gives you, um, you know, it, it, there's like a whole booklet for free that you can get on their website that it gives you like a hundred different meals that you can make with the foods. It's just a great, great resource. Um, so that's definitely uh, something that I'd recommend for the listeners to look into, but I would definitely recommend that as a starting point compared to the low FODMAP. Yeah, absolutely. And even with people with IBS, the low FODMAP diet is not effective for everyone. I believe it's about 60% effective for people. And as you said, it's a very complicated 
and difficult diet to follow and most people aren't following it correctly. So, and I also find in a lot of people with, with IBS, even or other digestive challenges that doing that isn't even necessary because often people will go to their doctor, perhaps be diagnosed with IBS and recommended the low FODMAP diet. And they could be eating all of these sorts of processed foods, lots of these vegetable oils that you've spoken about and not having, you know, plenty of whole foods, vegetables, fruits, you know, quality proteins, all of that sort of thing. And then they're told to go straight on the low FODMAP diet. And perhaps if you just made some basic shifts towards eating more whole foods, that's actually all that you may need to manage those symptoms anyway and and feel much better. And I guess the other massive challenge with the low FODMAP diet for anyone, you know, including people with IBS is that there really is no strategy to come off it. You're not really doing anything to actually improve the function of your gut or your microbiome or anything like that. And in fact, as you mentioned, it can actually have adverse impacts on your microbiome in the long term. So if you do choose to go on that and you find that to be beneficial, make sure you have a strategy to actually reintroduce foods and come off that, which is likely to you know include some of the things that we've discussed and specifically focusing on addressing your digestive function. So that was really helpful. So do you have any final pieces of advice for anyone listening with IBD? Maybe some final tips that they can go in put into practice or some sort of final perspective shift. And I know you've given us so much already. This has been really, really helpful. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, there, there's a bunch of different other things we could talk about diet by getting into, into details and stuff like that. Um, I guess one, one last piece of advice is that for IBD specifically, uh, there has been a lot of inf- uh, information and research showing that a very high protein intake or very high meat and especially red meat intake can adversely affect um, symptoms and flare-ups and stuff like that. As far as all of the protein goes, red meat seems to be the worst because it seems to do with the heme and the, the when that actually gets into the colon, that t- the iron that's in the heme can actually create oxidative stress in the colon. That's the current theory, whether that's right or not, doesn't really matter because the research is showing regardless, it creates problems. So, um, you know, if you, as far as protein goes, if you want to opt more for, you know, chicken or Turkey or even dairy, I mean, um, there a lot, dairy is kind of a heated debate with IBD, but I find most people with dairy and the research supports this as, as well, don't actually have an adverse reaction to dairy. They have an adverse reaction to lactose. And so if they get lactose-free dairy, or if they take a lactase enzyme with their dairy, they usually can tolerate it just fine. Um, and, and this goes, even when we go back to the low FODMAP thing, lactose is one of the FODMAPs, but you could just take a lactase enzyme or get lactose-free. You don't have to cut out the entire food component. Now, whether you want to have dairy or not, there's other, you know, there's other details of that, but I just want to throw that out there. Uh, kind of, it's a last, last little strategy, but, um, with everything we talked about, I would say the take home points would be first, look at your fat intake, make sure that you, you can try to lower that omega six intake, try to raise the omega three, and maybe try to lower the overall amount of fat that you consume. Cause that can have a massive impact just on its own with just that one macronutrient. 
Then we've talked about fiber. Make sure you're choosing good fibers, fermentable fibers rather than non-fermentable fibers. Start incorporating those into your diet. If you're in a bad place, you know, hold off on the fiber or, or introduce it very, very slowly. As you get to a better place, as your symptoms decrease, you come out of remission, you want to purposely try to increase that fiber intake to at least 30 to 40 grams a day if you can manage but play with it and see what works for you. Usually if you're using those good fibers, you'll do perfectly fine with that. And it'll usually help you. Um, and then again, last point would be check out that IBD aid uh, diet. gives you amazing diet plans, amazing food suggestions. It's a great, great resource that I found most people don't know about that are struggling with IBD and just don't know where to turn to for what they should eat. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. So where is the best place for people to find you and follow along with you and learn more from you? So my website's goldenhealthmethod.com. Um, my handles on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, it's all golden health method. Um, so you can find me there. Uh, if you want to go to goldenhealthmethod.com slash gift, you will, I'll, I'm giving away a free mini online course that actually does a deeper dive into how to change the types of fats that you're eating. So it's called IBD, get your fats right. Uh, we already talked about omega sixes and threes, uh, which are what's called polyunsaturated fats. In that mini course, I also go over saturated fats and monounsaturated fats. Um, and there's details that, that will be very helpful for those with IBD on getting all of their fats right. Uh, it goes way deeper than just eat good fats, avoid bad fats. Um, and it's very helpful to a lot of people completely for free. So if you want to check that out, goldenhealthmethod.com slash gift. Awesome. Thank you so much. Definitely go and check that out, everyone. So thank you so much, Sean. This has been such a great conversation. I'm sure everyone listening has taken loads from this. And yeah, thanks so much, everyone. Go and check out Sean on his website and socials. Thanks, Fran. I loved being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the High Vibe and Healthy podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to chat with me about how we can work together to reach your health goals, head to frandargaville.com. To connect with me day to day, Instagram is the place to be. Follow me via my handle at frandargaville. And finally, please note that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not considered to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.